Thank you, Terry. Would you stand with me this morning as we read from God's Word, turning to the book of Matthew, chapter 8. We'll be reading verses 1 through 17. Pastor Bruce will continue his series on Follow Me. This morning, we talk about the healing grace of Jesus. Again, we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. You can find it on page 555 in a pew Bible. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and healed all who were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Let's pray. God, we just ask this morning that as we hear from your word, Lord, that uh, your grace would be poured out upon us, Lord, our hearts and minds would be changed. God, that we would see, Lord, the healing power of your salvation, Lord, and that our hearts would be changed to become more like you. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. Good to see each and every one of you here as we worship our Lord, as we hear from Him in the passage that Kirk read for us here in Matthew chapter 8. This morning what we want to do is continue in our series that we began last Sunday, a series that is based on the words of Jesus Christ Himself that we are simply calling, Follow Me. Last Sunday we saw that there are basically two groups of people following Christ in the book of Matthew, and that is still true today in our world, and those two groups are casual fans. We learned last Sunday, the second group, we could identify them as committed followers. But Jesus didn't come to simply attract more crowds, more fans. He came to bring the kingdom of heaven. He came to make true disciples. 
And so what we see in the book of Matthew here, specifically in chapters 8 and 9, is that Jesus' goal in Matthew, and it is still the goal here today, it's the same, and that goal is to turn casual fans into committed followers of Jesus Christ. And of course, he does this with two simple words. We looked at these two words last Sunday when he called two sets of brothers. And he simply chose them, called them, and said to them, follow me. Jesus is still offering that call. He's still offering that invitation to us today. And so his goal for all of us here this morning is for us to move from casual association with Jesus and move into the category of supreme adoration of Jesus, from casual fans to committed followers. But what does this mean when Jesus says, follow me? What does that look like? Well, we saw in our example last Sunday that follow me is a call to leave a a wasted life in self and for self in order to live a kingdom life in Christ and for Christ. And of course, last Sunday we saw in Matthew 4 that four fishermen basically were willing and they left all things in order to do one thing, and that was to follow Christ, to follow Jesus with everything. But there are still many, as we scan the pages here of the book of Matthew, there are still many people who are following Jesus with just a a casual association. They don't have this supreme allegiance or the supreme adoration for Christ. We see these people in Matthew 4, 25 when it says, And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis and Jerusalem, Judea and beyond the Jordan. And then in chapter uh, chapter 5 through uh, uh, 7, we see that Jesus then begins to teach about life in the kingdom, what it means to live for Christ, and what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And and you move into chapter 8, verse 1, and it says, And when he had come down from that mountain, after preaching the Sermon on the Mount, it says, again, great multitudes followed him. Why were they following him? Why were great multitudes, these crowds, these these Casual fans, why were they attracted to Christ? What was it about Jesus that attracted them to Jesus? Well, Matthew tells us back in chapter 4, verse 23, Now Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria. So we basically, here in this one verse, we see a a summary of Jesus' ministry here. He went about all Galilee doing three things. Teaching, preaching, and healing. In other words, it was a ministry in both word and works. And the crowds were amazed by it. They're blown away by it. They're like, man, we've never seen anything like this before. Who is this man? Who is teaches with such authority. In fact, Matthew tells us at the end, after Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, in, verse, in chapter 7, 28 and 29, it says, And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished 
and his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Interesting. So what we see here in Matthew 5 through 7 is Jesus is teaching by the authority of his word. And what we're going to see in the next few weeks, beginning today, here in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, is Jesus begins performing miracles, get this, by the authority of his word. So Matthew wants us to see, just as he wanted the Jews back then to see, Jesus' authority in teaching and his authority in healing. Why? Because both the teaching and the healing of Jesus Christ, both of these things proclaim one thing. They proclaim that Jesus is king. His words and his works both bear witness to his kingdom authority. And so Matthew was making one thing clear to us, as he did in his day, and he's still making that clear to you and I today. He's making this message clear in Matthew 8 and 9 that Jesus Christ the King possesses absolute authority in the world. Therefore, he warrants absolute allegiance from the world. Remember, the crowds, the multitudes, what we call the fans, they were astonished by Jesus' teaching because he was teaching with authority. Therefore, Jesus had a lot of enthusiastic admirers following him around the countryside. And so what Matthew does is he shows us that Jesus possesses absolute authority in this world in which we live so that people will know that Jesus warrants absolute allegiance from the world. So beginning in Matthew 8 here, what you have is story after story after story after story describing Jesus' miracles of healing. It's awesome. It's amazing. It's astonishing. And then Jesus, what's interesting is he will pause between these miracle stories. He'll pause between them to describe, hey, listen, here's what it means to follow me. You can almost describe these interludes kind of mini discipleship lessons. And what he does, he pauses between these miracles to stop, and sometimes he's addressing the crowd, sometimes he's addressing his own disciples to say, hey, listen, don't get sidetracked here. Here's what it means to follow me. And so that's where we're going in the next weeks to come. Now today, this morning, we're going to focus on the healing grace of Jesus Christ. Now here's the reality of the situation. The reality in Matthew's day and the reality in our day is together we are a people who are very familiar with sickness and suffering. Your world and the world around us is filled with disease and death. In fact, the National Cancer Institute website reports that one out of two, one, get this, one out of two people born in the United States today will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their life. 
And some of you are there now. And many of you will be there later in your life. Just as I myself am there when I was diagnosed with just cancer last March in my stomach. And then beyond cancer, there are people and families here in our church who are struggling with various sicknesses, various diseases, and even the death of loved ones. I can't help but think of people in our church family right now. And I see you by face, even here this morning. I picture you in my mind and by name, where this is so very real in your life. In fact, all you have to do is look at all the prayer needs on the back of your bulletin to see how sickness and suffering affects all of us in a very real way. I've made more hospital visits in this last month than I have, I think, in the last 10 years of pastoring here. During the months of May and June, I had six different funerals. And so what I want all of us to understand is that not by accident that we are now in this passage of Scripture here for our church family. God has a message for us. And so I invite you to open your heart and to open to your mind what God has for us today. Because sickness and suffering is real in our world, and it is real in our church family. And so what I want us to see this morning is that whether it's cancer, whether it's a disease of some sort, whether it's another sickness in your life, or even death, listen to me, Jesus Christ has authority over it all. Amen? This authority is we're going to see in three miraculous healings. With a leper, the servant of a centurion, and a mother-in-law. So let's look at the healing grace of Jesus here this morning. Number one, Jesus heals the physically untouchable. He heals the physically untouchable. The first person who encounters Jesus is a leper. And this leopard, let me tell you, he shows some great audacity when he, he kind of just cut through the crowds of people, but he also showed great reverence when he approached Jesus Christ. We're told that he knelt down in a posture of worship or adoration, but he also kept his distance from Christ. Why? Due to his leprosy. Of all the diseases described in the Bible, let me tell you, no disease was more horrible, no disease was even more feared than this disease, leprosy. Leprosy is a disease that attacks the nerve system to the point where a person can no longer feel pain, especially in their outer extremities. A leper experiences infection easily, which then leads to degeneration of tissues and organs and eventually limbs to the point where limbs begin to be deformed and even fall off. One author put it this way, lepers were viewed as dead men walking. So leprosy, as you can imagine, was a horrific physical condition. But it was also considered a, a spiritual disease, if you will, a, a spiritual contagion in first century Judaism. This is why lepers, if you were ever wondering this, why lepers were considered unclean. Matthew even refers to it. He uses these words, clean and unclean. 
They're even considered, in a sense, cursed by God and even suspected of terrible sins. You could go to Numbers chapter 12 and read about this. They were even, their Jewish laws concerning leprosy, according to Leviticus 13 and 14, lepers were required to live outside of the city, outside of the walls in isolation. And any garments that had been affected by leprosy had to be burned in a fire. People were required to, to stay a certain distance away from lepers. So lepers, if they were coming in, close proximity people, they would have to shout, unclean! unclean, to warn people to, to stay away because touching a leper would be to defile yourself. It would mean you would become unclean. So it's no wonder that Matthew adds this word, behold, when this leper approached Jesus in verse 2. This leper is breaking every social and ceremonial rule in the book, and yet this leper, he comes, and this is so cool, he comes full of faith in Jesus Christ. Notice again what the leper says to Jesus in verse 2. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Doesn't that just blow you away? What great faith here. This untouchable leper acknowledges two things about Jesus. Notice this in your notes, coming up on the screen. First of all, what the leper does know, he knows this, Jesus is able to heal. This leper doesn't question Jesus' ability. He doesn't question Jesus' power. He knows that Jesus is more than able to heal him. The question this leper has, is Jesus willing to heal? That's what the leper doesn't know. Is Jesus willing to heal my life? Now, let's just pause here for a moment. Because I want, I want to point out a distinction between Jesus' sovereign power and his sovereign will. So, you get these two words in your mind. Jesus' sovereign power, Jesus' sovereign will. And I want you to understand, both are extremely important especially when it comes to praying for healing in our own lives or even praying for people that we know in our family or in our church family. So if you have cancer or if you have some sort of other disease or sickness, listen to me, don't ever doubt Jesus' ability or power to heal. Is Jesus able to heal you? Is Jesus able to heal your family member, your loved one? Is Jesus able to heal your friend? Absolutely. Jesus is able to heal. There's no question Jesus has power over disease. There's no question that he's able to heal. The question is, is Jesus willing to heal? Is it his will for you or your family member or your friend to be healed? And that is a different question altogether. And most of the time, that is what we don't know. Here in Matthew chapter 8, the answer is what? Yes. Jesus is willing to heal this leper. But then you go over further in the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and you see that the Apostle Paul has a struggle. You could say the Apostle Paul has his own disease, his own sickness, 
what he calls his thorn in the flesh, and there the Lord is not willing to heal. We know the Lord didn't heal Paul. In fact, Paul asked three times. All three times, God said no. And we know that the Lord didn't heal Paul for the purpose that he wanted Paul to trust in his grace through his thorn in the flesh instead of removing his thorn in the flesh. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. He says three times, I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, and these are beautiful words, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. James Montgomery Boyce, most of you probably have never heard of that name, but he was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a very historic church. He's written many, many commentaries and books, which I have several of his books in my office even now. He shared with his congregation how they should pray for him after being diagnosed with liver cancer. Here's his words to his congregation. Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you are free to do that, of course. My general impression is that the God who is able to do miracles is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, he says, they are rare by definition. Above, above all, then, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you say, where in all history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. And yet, that's where God is most glorified. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by. God is not only the one who is in charge, listen to what he says, God is also good and everything he does is good. Whoa. What confidence in the sovereign power of God. What trust in the sovereign will of God. We need both, especially when we're facing sickness and suffering. And so as you pray as individuals, as you pray as a church family for one another and in your grow groups, even tonight, listen, you pray with confidence in God's sovereign power, knowing that He is able to heal, amen? But don't forget, you also pray with trust in God's sovereign will, knowing that no matter what His will may be, it is good, it is perfect, and it is pleasing to our God. Now back to the story. Because what Jesus does next in the story here is shocking to say the least. The leper says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And verse 3 tells us, then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now don't miss the beauty of this. Because remember, you don't touch who? Lepers. Listen, you avoid lepers at all costs. And you pray that you will never become one. 
And we know from the next story that Jesus didn't have to touch this man to heal him. Jesus could have just said the word and the leprosy would be gone. So why did Jesus do this? Well, notice this is coming up in your notes. Jesus touched this untouchable leper, and in the process, Jesus identifies with the uncleanness of the leper in order to make the leper clean. So what we have here, get this, is a beautiful picture of what Jesus will do for you and I, ultimately on the cross, with the uncleanness of our lives. All of us stand before God, dirty and stained with the shame of sin. I mean, who here has not have regrets? We all have things in our lives, sins in our past, or even sins we're struggling with in the present that make us feel unclean and untouchable. But at the cross, Jesus identifies with your uncleanness. Jesus takes all the shame and stain of your sin upon Himself in order to make you clean and righteous before a holy God. Woo! That's so awesome. Oh, what a beautiful picture of God's grace. Because let me tell you, this leper didn't deserve any of it. Just as you and I didn't deserve salvation. After Jesus heals the leper, he tells him in verse 4, See that you tell no one, but go your way. Show yourself to the priest, which was consistent with the Old Testament law for lepers or for Jews. But why would Jesus say to him, don't tell anybody what happened? That seems rather weird, rather odd. Well, there's a variety of reasons behind that. But remember, Jesus didn't come to impress the crowds. He's not here to attract more fans. He came to die for sinners. He came to make true disciples. So he didn't want to be known as some wonder worker among the crowds. He didn't want to be known as some Messiah who would overthrow the Roman rule, which is what the Jews were hoping for. So not only did Jesus heal the physically untouchable, but we see the healing grace of Jesus when, number two, he heals the ethnically unacceptable. The second person to encounter Jesus is simply known as a centurion. Typically, a centurion was a military leader of approximately 100 soldiers. And in this case, he was probably assigned to the city of Capernaum. Now, keep in mind that a centurion was a, a Roman citizen and a soldier. So from a Jewish standpoint, he not only represented the Roman rule, which was oppressing Israel, the Jewish people at that time, but let me tell you, he was a Gentile. In other words, he's not like me, a Jew. And as a Gentile, he was considered ethnically unacceptable because he was outside the chosen people of God. So this centurion would have been despised by the Jews. And yet, verse 5 indicates that when Jesus entered the city of Capernaum, that this centurion appealed to Jesus on behalf of his servant. Notice what the centurion says in verse 6. Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. He merely tells Jesus his need. It's interesting. There's really no specific request for help, is there? 
But Jesus offers to do the unthinkable when he says in verse 7, I will come and heal him. Let me tell you, that statement right there is radical in Jewish culture. Because no devout Jew would ever go into the house of an unbelieving Gentile. But as soon as Jesus says, I will come, the centurion responds with amazing faith in verse 8. Look at it. He says, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. And then the centurion explains the logic behind his faith in verse 9, wherein he says, For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now don't miss Jesus' reply in verse 10. When Jesus heard it, he what? Marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Now, let me just highlight two observations here about Jesus' response. First observation, number one, Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion. So what kind of faith caused Jesus to be amazed? Just think about this with me. It would be quite difficult to amaze Jesus, right? He's seen everything. I mean, after all, he created the world. So how do you amaze Jesus Christ, the creator of the world, who's seen everything, done everything? Great faith is what amazes Christ here. Jesus kind of stands back and he's like, whoa, blow me away. Amazing. But what kind of faith was this? Jesus says, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. But what faith? But what is great faith? Well, we learn from this centurion that great faith, get this, is is a humble trust in the authority of Jesus Christ. This Gentile centurion is calling Jesus Lord, and he says, listen, I am not even worthy to have you in my home. There's the humility part. Just say the word, and you can heal my servant. There's the submission to authority part. And his explanation of it all is astounding. He tells Jesus, all you have to do is say the word. I too know what it's like to have soldiers and servants who respond to my commands. In other words, get the picture of this. Visualize this in your mind. This centurion is saying to Jesus, I command and soldiers obey. You command and creation obeys. And the implication is, Jesus has authority over paralysis. In other words, paralysis is servant. It's Christ's servant. All Jesus has to do is say the word and the servant will be healed. Why? Because Jesus has authority over disease. What an amazing picture of faith. No wonder Jesus kind of stands back and is amazed by it. He marvels at such great faith. But this also brings us to number two. His second response. Jesus mourns at the unbelief of Israel. And this is where Jesus begins to talk about the kingdom of heaven and the sons of the kingdom. Look what Jesus says in verse 11. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Basically, Jesus is talking about a future kingdom that will include, and this is amazing here, that will include acceptable, Jesus-trusting, faith-filled Gentiles like this centurion. And you say, why is that so awesome? Because who are we? Gentiles. 
were in the centurion's boat. And the gospel comes to him as it comes to us. In other words, this centurion's faith is a wonderful reminder that the gospel is for all peoples from all the nations from all over the world. Woo! Get excited about that. However, according to verse 12, the sons of the kingdom will not share a place at the table in the kingdom of heaven. You're like, sons of the kingdom. Man, was that some movie I missed last summer? No, it's not a movie. The sons of the kingdom refer to the people of Israel. People who thought they were automatically part of God's kingdom by birth or by right. But Jesus is letting them know, no, you're not. And the reason you're not is because you have rejected me as the Messiah, as the promised one. You have a lack of faith. Jesus tells them in verse 12, but the sons of, of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a description of eternal judgment in hell. Now, you say, what's the point of all this? Why is Matthew emphasizing this for us here? Well, here's the point. Jesus is making very clear that what brings you a seat at the table in the kingdom of heaven is faith. Humble trust in the authority of Jesus for our salvation. Please don't miss this. Jesus is saying that this kind of faith is the essential factor in a person's eternal destiny. And this is where this story becomes so relevant for you and I here this morning. The determining factor of your life for all eternity is based on whether or not you have put humble trust in the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. So I ask you this morning, have you trusted in Jesus? Have you trusted in His authority to save you from your sins and to reign as the Lord over your life? Because this is what will separate all people in eternity. And all who trust in Jesus like this, regardless of background, regardless of ethnicity, will be welcomed by the King at His table in the kingdom of heaven. Woo! Amen, right? The gospel's for all peoples, and we're reminded of this. We get a little glimpse of it right here in this story. So we've seen Jesus heal the physically untouchable and the ethnically unacceptable, and now Jesus heals the culturally unprofitable. This final healing is Peter's mother-in-law. How many knew Peter was married? Okay, maybe some of you did. Now you know Peter was married. Proof right here. Now, what makes this interesting is that women in general were often viewed as second-class citizens in Jesus' culture. In that day and age, in that culture, women weren't highly valued. And yet we come to verses 14 and 15, and it says, Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. Then she arose and served them. Now again, this is an amazing display of power by Jesus Christ. 
All Jesus does is touch her hand, and she was instantly healed. No recovery time. No recuperation time. I'm like, oh man, that would have been awesome. I remember going through my surgery in, in, in April. Stomach surgery. Six weeks of recovery time. I thought I died, in a sense, for those first two weeks. Every move was with pain. And it took time to heal. It took time to regain energy and strength. But this woman, Peter's mother-in-law, no recuperation time, no recovery time. And she immediately got up and began to serve everyone in the house. Amazing. Now the result of these three healings, as you can imagine, was an outpouring of needs from the surrounding area. Look what Matthew writes in verse 16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And then it says in verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now that's interesting to say the least. But what does it mean? Matthew quotes here from the prophet Isaiah to explain basically what's going on with Jesus' miracles. To explain Jesus' authority over disease and sickness. To give context to it. And Matthew quotes specifically from Isaiah 53. Do you remember that chapter? It's the prophecy about Jesus Christ. The suffering servant who would come and take our diseases, take our sicknesses, and bear our sorrows and sufferings and griefs. And so Matthew quotes specifically from Isaiah 53 verse 4, but I want you to listen to it in context of verses 4 5 and 6, listen to Isaiah. He says, Surely he, speaking of Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Basically, Isaiah 53 is a prophecy that is looking forward to the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for sinners like us here this morning. And it's there where Matthew quotes from to explain what's going on here in these miracle stories of healing. But it's at precisely at this point, I believe, where so many people, oh, shall we say, get confused. They'll maybe ask the question or even say, well, does this mean when Jesus died on the cross, he died so that we wouldn't have to be sick in this world anymore? Some have even taken this truth these verses about Jesus' authority over disease to conclude that as Christ followers, as Christians, God's will now in this world is for you to live healthy 
Because Jesus has taken away all your sicknesses, all your suffering. This is at the core of what is commonly known as health and wealth prosperity teaching, which is a false gospel. They'll say things like, you're free from disease now. You're free from sickness now. You're free from that cancer now. But that is simply not the case. That's not true. That's a misunderstanding of God's Word. Because what Matthew is showing us here is that Jesus' authority over disease is foreshadowing a greater healing to come. Look at this in your notes coming up on the screen. Jesus has power to overcome, yes, all our suffering, all our sicknesses, because He paid the price to overcome all our sins with His life, death, and resurrection. Matthew is showing us that Jesus has the authority and power to overcome all suffering, all sicknesses. There's no question about that. That's the whole point of these miracle stories. But Matthew, get this, he's grounding that authority in the reality that Jesus has paid the price to overcome all our sin, and that's the whole point of the cross. Now this is really important for us. You say, why? Because all suffering in this world today, all sickness in this world today, all diseases in this world today goes back to sin in the world. Before sin came into the picture, there was no sickness. There was no disease. There was no death. There was no suffering. But when sin entered the world, and you can read about it in Genesis 3, suffering also enters the world. And so now, as a result of that sin in our world, we now live in a world marked by evil and suffering and sickness and pain and disease and death. And when Jesus came to die on the cross, He came to address the root problem, the root issue. And the root problem is not sickness and suffering in our lives right now in this world. The root problem is what? Sin. And Jesus paid the price to overcome our sin so that we could be free from the penalty of sin. And yes, one day from the presence of sin and its effects on our lives. That's the whole point of the cross. So here's the question. Does that mean God's will for us in this world is no longer to experience sickness and suffering? As your pastor, and as your friend to many of you, personally, oh how I wish I could say that was the case. But that is simply not true. All of these miracles that we're looking at in Matthew 8 and 9 are intended to give us a glorious picture of what is to come in the fullness of God's kingdom when Christ fully and finally asserts His authority and His rule and His reign on this earth. But that time is not yet. Which means in the meantime, we still live in a world full of sickness 
and suffering, diseases, and death. So when you hear Jesus has authority over disease, do not take that to mean that as a Christian you will be free from sickness and suffering today in this world. Instead, take that to mean that because Jesus has authority over disease and authority over sin, you have hope now in this world. You can have joy now and strength and peace that surpasses the worst trials and the worst diseases that this world may bring you. Now before we end, I want to leave you with two lessons from the healing grace of Jesus here. Number one, the first lesson is to trust completely in Jesus' power over sin. Folks, listen, I don't care what is going on in your life, no matter what is going on, no matter what you are facing, the most important factor in your life at this moment is to trust in Jesus and in His authority to save you from your sins and to reign as the Lord in your life. Have you come to a place in your life where you have trusted in Him for that. And the second lesson we learn is to rest peacefully in Jesus' power over sickness. Now, in no way this morning, because I know this is such a reality in our church family here with many of you. So in no way do I want to minimize the sickness and suffering some of you are walking through. And yet, stay with me. Stay with me. Because I want to encourage you with a picture at the end of each of these three stories. You've got a leper who is now standing there and he is cleansed. You've got a paralyzed man, what? Rising up and walking again. You've got a mother-in-law whose fever is gone. And what is she doing? She immediately gets up and begins to serve. What beautiful endings to these three stories. And one day, get this, that will be your story. And one day, that will be my story when Jesus returns and asserts His full and final authority over all the effects of sin, including sickness and suffering. Listen to me. There is coming a day when leprosy will be no more. There's coming a day when paralysis will be no more. There's coming a day when fever will be no more. And on that day, sickness and suffering, disease and death will be no more. That is our hope in Jesus Christ. Amen? But that day is not yet. And so we wait for that day. We long for that day. And we pray for that day to come. And until then, we trust completely and we rest peacefully in Jesus' power over sin and sickness because He has power over sin. I want to end with a story of Zach Smith. Many of you know Zach Smith, who was the son of a missionary that we used to support, Jim and Sharon Smith in Ecuador. Here's his story on video.
come to our response time. Because this is so real in the life of our church, with many people, here's what I'm asking us to do as a church family. And that is to just pray. To come before our God and bring people that you know before the throne of God. If you're wondering who some of those people are, you can look at the back of your bulletin and pray for them by name. And here's how I'm asking you to pray. Pray with confidence in God's sovereign power to heal them. And yet at the same time to pray with trust in God's sovereign will, no matter what that will may be. We oftentimes do not know. But like at the end of Zach's video, we can say no matter what it is, God is still God and God is still good for his glory. So as the praise team sing, will you take a few minutes to praise a church family? Thank you.